Hello and welcome to the 13th episode of the Military Medicine Podcast, hosted by Matt Kane and myself, James Coote. In this episode, we interview Professor Trish Greenhell from Oxford University, who is a world leader in translational medicine. Prof Trish gives us a fascinating insight into her work in implementing telemedicine in the Outer Hebrides, a case study of a failed wearables intervention, and the framework she's developed from her experiences for implementing technology projects in health and social care. Prof Trish is a GP by background and loves open water swimming and many other sports in her spare time, sharing with us that her mantra is that weekends are for sport. She must be pretty good, as apparently she first met her husband when she was overtaking him at the World Triathlon Championships. Without further ado, let's launch into the episode. Thanks ever so much for joining us, Prof Greenhill. Uh, we kick off the podcast with five quickfire questions that you're only allowed to answer with a single word or phrase. Then we'll come back to some of these topics later okay. in the podcast. Uh, so are you ready? Yep. Brilliant. So first up, uh, I'm creating a new healthcare technology that I think is going to change the world. Why is it most likely to fail? Healthcare technology is most likely to fail because clinicians won't use it. Okay. If you were queen for the day, what one change would you make to the NHS to improve the way it used technology? A large injection of money. Has technology been a net force for good or for bad in healthcare so far? Net good, I think. But I say that cautiously. If you had to start a healthcare startup today, which area would you start it in? Self-tracking. And finally, if you had to suggest one bit of further reading or listening or watching for our listeners, what would it be? There's a book by Paul Durish and Genevieve Bell called Divining a Digital Future. Paul Durish is a computer scientist and Genevieve Bell is an anthropologist and it's about the cultural dimension of adoption of technologies. I think there's a whole chapter on sheds, for example. Just great. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you. Very good answers. So this podcast focuses on innovations relevant, particularly to military medicine. Uh, and in past episodes, we've covered all sorts of shiny technologies, including wearables, apps, AI, and mixed reality, amongst many others. What we know, though, is that no matter how impressive the technology um, is, implementation is really tricky. And given that, which areas does technology have the biggest opportunity to make an impact in patient care? I think that's a huge question. Um, Where I've been working recently is in in video technology for remote consultations. So, for example, uh, my team were contracted by the Scottish Government to look at a Scotland-wide project to introduce the option of having a healthcare consultation via video, particularly for patients who are living in very remote areas, on the Scottish islands, for example. I went out to the Outer Hebrides, absolutely beautiful place, but it's very, very far away from anywhere. Now, patients, for example, with cancer, were getting on a plane and flying from the Outer Hebrides to Inverness to have their chemotherapy or to see the specialist, and guess what? They didn't feel very well. And maybe the plane was cancelled because of fog, all that kind of thing. The idea that you could just link up by video and connect to a specialist in your own cancer and talk about how you're feeling uh, and also maybe have a local nurse administer your chemotherapy who may not be an expert but who's an expert enough 
to uh, have dialogue with the consultant remotely. Now, that's an example of... Uh, I met patients whose lives have been completely transformed by that technology. I also met patients who actually would never use that technology and they quite liked getting the plane to Inverness because they could do some shopping while they were there. So, you know, it's, it's, it's horses for courses, isn't it? The interesting thing about remote uh, video consultations is they've now taken, for example, the basic stethoscope and given it an electronic link so that, for example, the healthcare assistant can place the stethoscope on the patient's chest in uh, the middle of nowhere and the specialist cardiologist sitting in, say, Glasgow can hear the heart sounds. So uh, the old-fashioned technologies have been brought into the digital age in really interesting ways. I also saw a camera that the ENT surgeons use to look down your throat and look at your vocal cords. And again, the ENT surgeon can be hundreds of miles away uh, so long as you've got someone who's just been taught to position it right. So I think these kind of remote gadgets are allowing us to practice traditional medicine but without the constraints of, 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 of um, distance. So we're going to focus in a little bit on the implementation side of things now. So why is implementing technology so difficult in the healthcare setting? Well, I've alluded to that in, in a previous question, uh, that an organisation adopting a technology requires strategic level decisions. It needs multiple people to buy into the technology, so that's one thing. Uh, I think another issue with um, implementation, and this is something I'm getting more interested in the more I do it, is the idea that implementing anything requires someone to be in charge of it and it requires it to be made into a project with goals, with milestones and all that kind of thing. And there is quite a bit of what is known as technological determinism in the health service. What I mean by that is the idea that here is a technology, we have made it available, we have bought it, therefore it will now just kind of trickle into practice. And of course it doesn't do that. Uh, and one of the projects I want to do is to go around and count how many new technologies are still sitting in the cardboard box that they arrived in uh, because somehow it was considered... The, the only thing people considered was buying it, was investing in it. Now, that is an extreme case. Usually, when someone invests in technology these days, it's nominally somebody's job to get other people to use it. But also, as a, as a general thing, not enough thought, not enough financial investment, not enough human resource is put into training people to use it, redesigning work processes, um, allowing people to raise their concerns and make sense of the technology. So um, let me give you a story. Let's see if you can put this in your podcast. It is said that when they first introduced networked um computing into an organization it wasn't a healthcare organization there were three reactions to it some people called it a typewriter and so they had this this keyboard and they just thought of it as a typewriter and they typed things other people you called it a calculator 
But the ones that really made uh, the most of that technology was the ones who called it a terminal. Because the people who called it a terminal got the fact that it connected them to other people in the organisation. And those were the people who could think about intranets and, uh, you know, linking in different ways. The people who called it a typewriter, of course, were, were still using it like a typewriter. So it's those kind of conceptual changes. And when you uh, introduce a technology in an organisation, you have to give people the scope and the opportunity to reframe what they're doing with that technology. And what do you think is the best recent example of successfully implementing a healthcare technology? And Moet, you've done a lot of case studies and things. What, what example would you um, give? A su- success. I think there has been quite a lot of success up in Scottish Highlands with um, video technology. And the reason is that they have introduced that as a quality improvement project, as a service change, and not as implementing video technology. So the people who are leading on that were people who were trained in quality improvement techniques, trained in the ideas of things like the plan, do, study, act cycle, things like the need for staff training, the need for feedback loops, that kind of thing. And it works. It actually works. We went up there and, you know, watched these things happening. Um, I could give you an example of projects that haven't worked so well. That would be fascinating. Um, So I think one of the projects that we evaluated, which was quite nicely conceptualized um, and and honorably conceptualized you know people people really wanted to make a change uh, but the technology wasn't adopted um, was a GPS tracking device for people with mild to moderate dementia so it looked like a, a wristwatch and you would put it on the person and they would uh, wander off take the dog for a walk go to the pub go to the betting shop whatever and they wouldn't be able to find their way home but it was okay because they were wearing the device and then they didn't come home so someone would contact the the center which would put a call out and they'd say oh yeah you know granddad's in the park or something like that you better go and get him so it all sounded like a really good idea and it sounded very liberating and empowering that granddad would be able to go out with a dog all that kind of thing um it didn't work for a number of reasons the first thing first reason it didn't work was because actually mild to moderate dementia is a huge uh, clinical condition. A lot of people didn't need it. They could find their way home, even though they had a bit of memory loss. Um, those with so-called moderate dementia, some of them, you know, even with the tracker, they, you know, they, they take it off and forget to put it back on. You know, why, why, you know that's the point, isn't it? Um, the technology itself seemed like a good idea it seemed like it'd been well designed but actually it needed recharging after a few hours like two or three hours and so it'd run out of battery or people would forget to plug it in overnight or they'd plug it in overnight and then they'd forget to put it back on granddad that because there were real technical issues practical issues um but one of the big problems with it was that the social workers whose job it was to uh recruit people into this study didn't like introducing people to it because they said it was granny tagging they said that it was unethical that it was the state tagging people and actually this thing had been designed for parole it had been designed to be put on somebody and 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 to to implement a directive 
you're not allowed to go within 200 yards of your ex-wife's house or something like that. So it, it had actually been designed for tagging um, and then adapted. And the social workers felt that this was unprofessional. And of course, if the people who are leading the implementation feel that it's cutting across their professional commitment to their client or patient, they won't use it. They really won't use it. Uh, so out of 1,500 people in the locality who had been identified as potentially eligible for this particular de- device, only 11 ever got signed up. Seven agreed to be part of our research, and by the end of an 18-month assessment period, only three were still using the device. So, And that was with quite a lot of investment, but it was a combination of the illness, the technology, the uh, people who were supposed to be promoting it, who were actually not who were resisting it, and also what value it brought to the to the patients or clients. So it was a, it was a combination of a lot of things actually. And what can we learn from that failure? I think we can learn that the idea for a technology is not a good enough proposition to actually fund an implementation program. I think we need to... We've developed something called the NAS framework, actually, which looks at the non-adoption and abandonment of technologies and also barriers to scale-up, spread and sustainability. And in the NAS framework, we talk about seven domains. We talk about the illness or condition. We talk about the technology. We talk about the value proposition, both supply side and demand side. Uh, We talk about the intended adopters, the organisation. We talk about wider issues like um, regulatory issues, for example, political issues, economic issues. Uh, And then we also talk about change over time. So something that seems as if you've kind of solved all those things initially, you might find that six months later all sorts of issues have come up. Uh, So there's sort of emergent complexity over time. So... All those things are complex, and the NAS framework, which if you put my surname into Google and NAS with three S's, uh, you'll get some stuff out. Brilliant. Now, focusing a little bit on early stage ideas, a lot of our listeners might have tried to implement their own innovations, perhaps succeeded, perhaps failed, or or might be thinking about having a crack at a project or startup. So um, we were going to ask what first piece of practical advice would you give them? Perhaps that might be looking at the NAS framework. What what would be your first bit of advice to them? The first bit of advice I would give to someone who is developing a technological innovation is read about other people who have developed similar devices or, or innovations and read stories, actually. Read rich case studies of what happened Uh, And actually, you know, in somewhere like the Harvard Business Review or in a lot of the the, the kind of tech journals, you you get stories of of what happened. And I think there is a tendency for people who are geeky and good at code and good at that kind of thing to think in a very algorithmic way about how things are going to unfold. But actually, the tech the adoption of technologies by people and in organisations is a social process. And that social process is often captured through narrative, through stories. And yes, with the NAS framework, really all that is is a way of telling a story about a complex uh, thing that, that happened with developing a technology. That's all it is. 
Um, and we've told quite a few good stories with the NAS framework. I mean, I explained the the um, cognitive impairment GPS tracker, but we've told a lot of stories. And I think to to learn from stories is really really important because otherwise you'll just be completely seduced by this technology. You'll think it'll it, it's just bound to have the effect. I think it. You know, there's a kind of the linear prediction that my technology will have the effect I'm thinking of, but it doesn't work like that. So look at the stories. And following on from that, um, obviously one reason implementation sometimes is challenging for innovations is that not all innovations are good ideas. Some of them are bad ideas. How could uh, someone who's starting a project uh, as quickly as possible work out whether their innovation is a good or a bad thing? I suppose it depends on the innovation, doesn't it? Because I think an awful lot of people who develop innovations have already done quite a lot of of background work. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't even start developing innovation, for example, without talking to people with a particular condition. You know, if it's a surgical thing, you'd talk to your fellow surgeons, you'd probably talk to other professionals. And that all feeds into the design. Um, So I think the... The idea that there is somebody with a technology that's already been designed who needs a bit of advice, they could probably give me quite a lot of advice because they've got a lot of content knowledge and they've they've almost certainly got quite a lot of in, input already. Um, where people go wrong, I think, is that they they understand about individuals. They they, for example, co-design is something that is often done at an individual level. So I'd show you, um, for example, a portal or a dashboard and say, well, could you use this and how might I change it? But actually, the co-design that needs to be done is often the co-design of the process of the organisational routine of, now, hang on a minute, where's this patient going to come from that I'm going to be consulting via video so how is the patient going to get into a virtual waiting room oh I might need to actually develop a virtual waiting room that kind of thing so it's not the technology itself and the individual use of it it's all the kind of routines around it that that people people forget to look at because they they're not so obvious and for a while now one of the buzzwords in technology has been machine learning and it's starting to make an appearance in healthcare. Mm. What are your thoughts on the increasing hype surrounding the use of machine learning in healthcare? Um, I'm actually very interested in machine learning and, and one of the examples is in digital x-ray reading. So for example, mammograms. So what you've got, um, and there'll, there'll be people listening to this who know a lot more about it than me, but my understanding is that at the moment you know you have a screening mammogram and two humans look at it and they're usually pretty good but even pretty good isn't perfect um so guess what you can train um an artificial intelligence application to look and they do pretty well the thing that the machine doesn't do is all the human stuff we may well have uh, a machine learning algorithm that would read the mammograms better than the human. And does that mean that it's going to put the radiologist out of business? And I would say, no, tomorrow's radiologist is not going to be a robot, but tomorrow's radiologist is going to be a different kind of human. It's going to be a human that can work in partnership with 
the machine. And that, I think, is quite interesting, that, that we will not be put out of our jobs because there is so much more work to do. Um, digital pathology, another example, you know, looking at biopsies, histopathology. You know, when I trained as uh, a doctor, which began about 40 years ago, you'd look down the microscope slide and say, that's prostate cancer. You don't do that anymore. Is that if you're a prostate cancer histopathologist, you then do all these immunohistochemical stainings and you can get all these subdivisions of, of prostate cancer. And there are some people who specialize entirely on nothing but prostate biopsies, query cancer. So it's not just cancer or not cancer, there's probably hundreds of different kinds. Now, all that means there's going to be enough work for every histopathologist who we can possibly train, plus as many, um, you know, machine learning algorithms as we can develop. Uh, so it's not going to it's not going to make uh, humans redundant, but the human specialist is going to have to be able to interact with the machine, and that's the bit that people are haven't quite got their heads around they just think this is going to push them out of a job well I've, I've never seen a non-busy histopathologist and yet there's plenty of technology around so thinking about in military wider healthcare areas how can leaders facilitate innovation one of the things that the literature shows is that in order to innovate you need a degree of autonomy now I've just been talking to one of your senior military people who's, who, was, who was telling me about design principles. And the first design principle that he told me about was the top brass have got to be supportive. And I thought, gosh, this is going to be quite hierarchical. But actually what he was saying was that the top brass have got to recognise that innovation is important. They've got to allocate a budget for it. They've got to give people the space but then they've got to leave them alone. So this is not something you can do through command and control, but actually the the top management, the the conventional leaders, if you like, have got to be able to create that space. And a lot of it is about about finding the the money and the time and saying, yes, you can get on with it. And so it's it's really achieving that balance. But the other thing that I think is, is quite interesting around leadership is the whole notion of distributed leadership. When you've got complex problems which need multifaceted solutions, no single person is solely in charge. You might have someone who's the designated project lead, but you've also got other people, other groups, other departments who need to chip in to make this whole thing work, especially when you're doing something like integrated care between primary and secondary care between, uh, you know, for example, the military and the NHS or something. uh, You will find that Others that you don't line manage have got to buy in and cooperate. And that's what we in academia call distributed leadership. And of course, that's all about dialogue, developing trust, those kind of uh, things. And for budding leaders and innovators out there, could you describe your MSc programme for translation medicine? Yeah, we've got, just developed a master's programme in what we call translational health science. It might be called the social science of innovation, but we've got intensive one-week modules. Uh, there's one on technology, there's one on behaviour change, there's one on economics and regulation, there's one on translational science and global health. So taking innovations from one uh, country uh, and perhaps using them in a very different setting. 
and each of the modules takes a, a week residential in Oxford with a bit of preparation and an essay afterwards and people work up to a dissertation which they can do on any subject they like implementing an innovation and yeah we'd love to have some applications from the military it'd be fantastic we can also do these modules as short courses but if you put my name and MSc in translational health sciences into Google um, I'm pretty sure we've arranged that it'll come out as the top um, the top hit even if you don't put my name in (laughs) (laughs) brilliant well thank you so much for your time professor trish Uh, we really appreciate it to our listeners thank you for listening Uh, we hope you enjoyed the episode please do engage with us and give us feedback on our twitter which is at milmed podcast and remember please log your cpd